Okay, welcome everyone to the Earthquake Science Seminar for uh, March 23rd. Um, as a reminder, please remember to mute your microphone and turn off the video while the, uh, the talk is on. Um, if you want uh, closed captioning, you can click the three buttons at the top of your screen, then go down to, uh, if I remember correctly, uh, captioning and then to turn that on. Um, so before we start, we have a few announcements. Um, First is tomorrow at 10 a.m. We're going to have a virtual coffee hour farewell to Jesse Saunders, who's uh, going to be moving on to a research scientist position at um, Caltech. So give a farewell to Jesse at 10. Um, tomorrow at 11 a.m. we have the all hands. Um, that's going to be on Teams. And then uh, next Wednesday at noon, we have the USGS town hall. That's also going to be on Teams. Um, uh, those are our announcements. Um, and today we have Wenbo Wu from Woods Hole. Um, so Wenbo received a BS and MS in geophysics from the University of Science and Technology of China. Um, he then completed a PhD uh, in geophysics at Princeton, working with Jessica Irving. Um, and he'd work on the composition and structure of the uh, lower mantle and the outer and inner core. Um, he then moved on to a director's postdoctoral fellowship at Caltech in the seismology laboratory. Um, we worked on seismic ocean thermometry, which is going to talk about today. Um, but he also did some work on uh, fiber optic seismology. Um, Wenbo has since moved on to the Woods Hole in, uh, Oceanographic Institute in Cape Cod, um, where he's now an assistant size, uh, scientist. Um, the title of his talk today is uh, Seismic Ocean Thermometry. Um, so with that, I'll just give it over to you, Wenbo. Okay, yeah. Thanks for the introduction. It's a great pleasure to introduce our work at USGS. And today I'm going to talk about uh, how to use seismic waves to measure ocean temperature changes. And this work is done with my collaborators. So me, Zhongwen, uh, Sidao, and Zhishao, we are seismologists. We also have oceanographers. So Shiri and uh, Yuan, they are oceanographers. And just for fun, as you can see this picture, this picture was taken by tourists uh, two years ago or three years ago uh, uh, in the ocean near Los Angeles. As you can see, these, these two whales jumped out of the water. And at that time, a local magnitude uh, 4.7 earthquake occurred. So just uh, uh, suspected these whales may might be disturbed by the earthquake. Of course, it could be just a coincidence. Yeah. yeah, just show this picture again. As you can see, these two whales. And this, so this is a, uh, outline of my talk. Um, and so I will, uh, I will first introduce uh, uh, some results from um, uh, Indian Ocean. And uh, so in that results, uh, I, it's, it's, uh, I will talk about just uh, how we can use one frequency band to measure ocean temperature changes. And then I will talk about our recent progress. It's uh, how to use different frequencies of acoustic waves. Uh, the acoustic waves generated by earthquakes and different modes to do some sort of depth thermography or depth information of the ocean temperature changes. And finally, it's my conclusions. So climate change is one of the major global crises faced by human beings. And in the climate system, the ocean plays a key role in regulating how the global warming evolves because it has huge heat capacity and absorbs almost all the excess energy due to increasingly abundant greenhouse gases. 
As you can see in the right figure here, almost all the energy that goes into the ocean and only a small portion of them, uh, the, it goes into that ice, land and atmosphere. So the ocean really acts as a buffer of the warming. Without this oceanic buffer, the global temperatures would rise much more rapidly uh, uh, than, than the case uh, with, 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 without ocean. However, accurate measure of ocean temperature change is a challenging problem, and there have been many debates about how much the ocean at different depths, the upper ocean and the deep ocean, how much of them, uh, how much temperature changes are in these different depths of the ocean. It's quite a, uh, it's quite a uh, controversial problem, or there are large uncertainties there. And to better constrain the ocean temperature changes, various types of methods, including sea surface temperature uh, measured by satellites, have been developed. However, measuring temperature below sea surface is much more difficult. Currently, the most important constraints and deep ocean come from the Argo flows. So Argo array is composed of a few thousands of drifting buoys to help us monitor ocean temperature changes. Also, Argo is excellent. Some limitations are present. For example, first of all, uh, most Argo flows drift in the top 2,000 meters. So they cannot measure temperature below that. And we know the ocean below 2,000 meters takes about half of the total volume. So half of the half of the volume, we just have no data. And secondly, the lateral spatial resolution is another issue. Even we already have thousands of uh, Argo flows currently, Argo data product could, could be still biased due to the aliasing effects. So there are lots of small scale or massive scale or dynamic processes in the ocean, and they are not reservable using even these thousands of flows. And finally, Argo started in 2004, and we don't have data before that. Because of these limitations, we really need more observational data to better constrain the deep ocean temperature changes. Among different thermometry methods, taking ocean temperature acoustically has the advantage of low cost and high accuracy. The principle of acoustic ocean thermometry is quite simple. It takes the advantage of high sensitivity of ocean sand speed to temperature. And this right figure just shows us this relationship. Basically, sand waves travel faster in warmer ocean. So for giving salinity and pressure, the derivative of sand speed alpha with respect to temperature T is roughly about four to five meter per second per degree. That means we can use this relationship to derive temperature change by observing sand speed or sand, sand wave travel time change. This is the principle of acoustic thermometry. High sensitivity to temperature is only one reason to make acoustic thermometry feasible. Another equally important reason is the long distance acoustic transmission in the ocean sofa channel. So sofa here stands for sand fixing and ranging channel. This long distance traveling is guaranteed by what we call waveguide effects. As I said, sand speed increases with temperature. So if we go from sea surface here to the deep ocean, we will see the sand speed gets reduced at first because temperature is uh, uh, because uh, because temperature is becoming colder, and then it comes back due to the higher pressure. 
that gives us this low velocity channel. So this low velocity channel makes the sofa channel act as the waveguide to protect the sun from the complicated interactions and energy loose with the seafloor. Similarly, in seismology, in seismology, we have lots of other uh, kind of waveguide effects, such as you know, the fault zone or the subducted oceanic crust, and we, we can see the waveguide effects. This long distance transmission carries out a spatial integration inherently, and therefore average out the effects of massive scale and smaller scale variabilities, such as eddies in the ocean. So accumulated travel time change is ideal for measuring ocean temperature change averaged along their traveling path. And another advantage of this long distance transmission is that we don't need to deploy thousands of receivers like Argo flows in the ocean. Instead, probably tens of receivers would be enough for a global application. The feasibility and advantage of acoustic thermometry have been demonstrated uh, in a few experiments. So here I just list three of these experiments. The first experiment was conducted at Perth of Australia as early as, uh, as 1960. Then the Heard Island experiment in 1991 tested the feasibility of long-range acoustic transmission and led to the milestone project ATOC. The ATOC is a joint program proposed by Walter Monk from UCSD Scripps and Carl Winch from MIT. So what they did in ATOC is put into repeatable acoustic sources in the ocean, one near Central California here and the other uh, acoustic source at Hawaii, and a bunch of hydrophones in North Pacific. These two sources just repeatedly send out 75 hertz signals every four days, and the sound waves travel time change and these hydrophones are tracked. Finally, they find a very good consistency between the temperature changes derived from ATOC and other oceanography measurements, as well as ocean circulation model predictions. So for the first time, ATOC demonstrates the excellence of acoustic thermometry in terms of low cost and high accuracy. In the 10 years, ATOC spent about $35 million and is able to measure temperature changes with an accuracy as high as 20 milli-degrees. However, ATOC stopped in 2006. An important reason for that is its potential impact on the environment. ATOC got troubled in lots of media reports and concerning from the public because these man-made sources might disorient whales or even kill them. The ATOC group spent $6 million to investigate this issue and concluded no significant biological impact. So far, I would say it's not easy to get a conclusion regarding whether or how much or how much these active sources could affect marine animals. But it did raise the permitting issues for these experiments. And here is some recent news and a review paper published last year. You can see the increasing concerns about the impact of ocean noises, acoustic noises made by different human activities. For example, these wind farms. We should seriously consider how to better manage these sound sources. If we are not allowed to use active sources, do you have other choices? You know, the ocean is a world of sun, 
this figure shows different kinds of sand waves, uh, sorry, sand sources in the ocean. So green colors are uh, 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 sources from marine animals, orange represents human activities, where ATOC is sitting here, and the blue colors are natural sources. Since the concept of acoustic thermometry proposed in 1980s, various types of naturally occurring sources, including volcanoes, whales, and ambient noises even, they have been suggested to be used for thermometry. However, none of them get successful at basin scale, hundreds or thousands of kilometers scale. One important reason is for that is the energy of these sources. As you can see in this figure, so the x-axis is frequency and the y-axis is power spectral density, basically how powerful these sources are. Many of these sources cannot produce strong signals to be observed at basin scale because they are not sufficiently powerful. In contrast, earthquakes are the most powerful source to produce strong low-frequency uh, wave, sound waves on our planet. So earthquake could be a good choice. However, some obstacles are present if we want to use earthquake to do thermometry. So next, let's see how we overcome these difficulties to make the earthquakes work. Here is the example of sound waves generated by earthquakes. And at the bottom here, it's a typical seismogram. You can see the first arrival P wave and the barely visible S wave because it's filtered at this frequency band, relatively high frequency band, so S wave just disappears. After half hour, uh, uh, after half half hour of, uh, of the earthquake occurrence, you can see this very big signal. So this signal is the uh, sound waves generated by the earthquake. So the earthquake generates P and S waves, and then they get coupled into the ocean, propagating at the sound waves. Finally, they are detected by seismometers. So this wave is uh, the 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 the, sun, the, the acoustic wave waves generated by earthquake, and we call it a T wave or tertiary wave because, because it arrives after P and S waves. Generally, T wave can be readily observed at this frequency band. And in the next part, as I said, I will uh, first show our results just using one frequency band, this frequency band, and then I will talk about how to uh, use multiple frequency bands to do depth tomography of ocean temperature changes. Also, submarine earthquakes usually produce strong T waves. Not all of them, they are usable for SOT, or seismic ocean thermometry, because T wave is quite complicated, and the locations and orange times of earthquakes are not accurate enough to make the absolute trial times of T wave useful for ocean thermometry. And our solution for this problem is using repeating earthquakes. So basically, we follow the same idea of repeating sources as previous active acoustic thermometry. But these sources, they are natural earthquakes. They have no impact on marine animals. And as you can see, I put, uh, uh, I put uh, this uh, quotation mark for the word repeating because the definition of repeating earthquakes is quite tricky. If only use waveform similarity information, which we will use later, it's quite hard to 
identify uh, 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 identify the overlapping rapture of the two earthquakes. So if we want to get a strict criteria, the two earthquakes, if we, if we want to identify their repeating events, they should be overlapping, they should be overlapping rupture, uh, rupture areas, but this is very difficult. But what, what I want to say here is for our purpose, as long as the error due to repeating event location difference is much smaller than that from the ocean temperature change, it's safe to use them for SOT. That means even there's no overlapping rupture area, it's still, they, they are still useful for, for our purpose. And as part one, I will show our results from Sumatra subduction zone, which we think is the best location for SOT for two reasons. First, it's seismically active. We know a few big earthquakes occurred in this region in the last two decades, including the 2004 big Sumatra earthquake and the 2005 magnitude 8.6 nearest earthquake, which is shown by this orange star here and in this big map, this orange star. Secondly, we have very good T-wave station DGAR located on this island Diego Garcia which is about 3,000 kilometers away from the earthquakes. So what we did here is collecting the T-wave data from DGAR, as well as P and S-waves at these three reference stations, which, which we are using for identify, identifying earthquakes and deriving the relative origin times between repeaters. So we will see this in the, uh, in the next slide. And the, we are, the time we are studying is from 2005 to 2016. This red line just, just shows the T-wave path, and it samples the northeastern Indian Ocean. This big map is just a zoom in the small source region here to show the earthquakes. So the black stars are all the 4,000 earthquakes we use, and the red stars are repeating earthquakes we find. Many of these earthquakes Earthquakes, they are aftershocks of the 2005 big nearest earthquake. So let's first look at one repeating earthquake example. These two earthquakes occurred in 2006 and 2008. At the top, what I'm showing you are P and S waves recorded at this reference station PSI. It's very close to the earthquake. So this station is in Indonesia. And as you can see, the P wave takes only about 35 seconds to reach this station. At the bottom, what I'm showing you is the T wave from DGAR. As you can see, these two seismograms, they are very similar to each other. So both in the P and S waves, as well as the, in the T wave. But for the T wave, for the T wave, in this plotting, even after origin time correction, so this correction is from the from the, from, from the P and S waves, we do the cross correlation to get the correction. And for the P wave, even after that origin time correction, we can still see uh, apparent time shifting between these two seismograms. This trial time change, it must be due to ocean change. And if we use waveform cross correlation to measure it, it gives us this number, negative 0.27 second. So a negative number here means T wave in 2008 arrives earlier than 2006. And the inference is the ocean in 2008 gets warmer. Then we just apply our method to 
all the 4,000 earthquakes at the nearest region. And finally, we get about 2,000 repeating pairs, which are composed of 900 individual earthquakes. So in this figure, each dot, each grid dot is one earthquake. And we have 900 uh, such kind of dots. You may notice that we have lots of data in 2005 and 2006 here. Uh, most of them, they are aftershocks of the 2005 big nearest earthquake. And then the aftershock sequence just decays as time goes on. So here we have about 2,000 uh, pair measurements. But these pairs, they only tell us the relative charge time changes between repeaters. In other words, these pairs, they are not linked to each other. So in order to get the time series of changes, we need to do an uh, an optimization or inversion to make these pairs connected with each other. And here we use, a, we use a relatively simple scheme to do the optimization. This scheme is minimizing the cost function L in this equation. So in this equation, tau is the trial time anomaly of each earthquake, and you can see the index i and j that repre represent earthquake. And delta tau is the measured trial time change, and this index k represents the, uh, the, the repeating pair. So this cost function is composed of two terms, the first term of data misfit and the second term of curvature. So the second term, the curvature term, can be called a regularization term if you want. It represents some sort of smoothing we apply to the inverted results. And by this way, we can get the inverted time series, which has an arbitrary but common reference for all the pairs. And this blue line is the final time series. As you can see, this blue line contains many interesting features or variations, and we will discuss these features in more detail later. Before we get into the detailed oceanography interpretation for these variations, we need to work out a critical technical question. That question is how to convert these trial time changes to ocean temperature changes. Basically, here we want to know which part of the ocean our T waves are sensitive to. And here we choose SpecFam 2D uh, to solve this problem of wave propagation. I guess some of us uh, are familiar with SpecFam. So this is the spectral element method. It's a full numerical method. So bathymetry and other structure complexity complexities can be fully considered in, in, in the uh, numerical simulation of wave propagation by this tool. 3D modeling is too computationally expensive. So here we simplify the problem to a 2D simulation along our T wave path. And the T, uh, and sorry, and the 2D sound speed profile in the ocean is derived from echo. So let me just briefly introduce what echo is. Echo is a 3D global ocean state data product developed by JPL at Caltech and many other collaborators. And what they do is they use all the possible data, including Argo, satellites, and others, all the possible oceanography data to do data simulation and get the best possible estimates of ocean state, including temperature. And here we just use ECHO's average temperature and salinity from 2005 to 2016 to build up our 2D sand speed, sand speed profile and then run spectrum 2D. 
So here, this figure shows our final result of 12 time sensitivity kernels. So these sensitivity kernels, they tell us which part of the ocean our T waves are sensitive to. As we expect, T waves are very sensitive to the ocean sulfur channel, this part. And these kernels get decayed to shallow and deep ocean. Almost 40% of these kernels, they are located below the depth of 200 meters, where Argo has no data. That means our results are nicely complementary to data from Argo and, and satellites, so, which is very nice. And then let's look at what ECHO predicts for this particular repeating earthquake pair. And in this middle figure here, uh, what it shows is the echo temperature change from this state to this state. As you can see, there are strong temperature change uh, 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 at, uh, near the sea surface. However, our T waves are not sensitive to, uh, to this shallow ocean at all. What T wave really cares is just the product of sensitivity kernels and the temperature change. And we, I plot this product in this right figure. So this is the echo prediction. And in this figure, if we do 2D integration to sum up all the contributions from each point in this, in this figure, and finally echo predicts a negative 0.14 second. A negative number here goes the same direction as our T wave observation or measurement, which is encouraging. However, the amount of 0.14 second is much lower than the observed 0.27 second. In other words, echo underestimates the warming. So in order to relate in temperature to trial time change, here we define a parameter of weighted average temperature change, which is this term. And the weightings, the weightings are just the sensitivity kernels K showing in this figure. And if we plot, oh, sorry, if we plug this in the kernels uh, into the denominator here, this ter term turns out to be uh, 5.4. And finally, we get this very simple relationship between trial time change, data tau, and temperature change, data big T. So for example, for this particular example, the trial time change 0.14 second is converted to 27 millikelvin temperature change. I need to point out that our T wave here can only tell us the temperature change averaged along the T wave path, both in horizontal and depth directions. But we are not able to know how the, these anomalies are distributed in the ocean. And here, this figure, it's the distribution from echo. It's not from our T wave. We don't know this distribution. So we only know the integrated number, this number, with T wave. So with this equation, we know how to convert trial time change to temperature change. And let's look at what we, what we can learn from this time series we obtained previously. So for comparison, here, three lines are plotted. Our T wave uh, with blue line, Argo with orange, and Echo with green. The Argo and Echo results here are calculated in the same way we have used for uh, this particular repeating earthquake pair, this one. So we just uh, repeat this uh, calculation for all the repeating pairs and get their time series. So in this figure, the y-axis on the left 
is 12 times anomaly, and we just use this equation to convert it to average temperature anomaly, which is y-axis and the right here. Note that the negative trial time anomaly goes uh, goes up goes up here because that's corresponding to warmer temperature. And as you can see, the trial time anomaly is up to uh, 0.4 second, and temperature change range is about 80 millicurrents. Generally, if we look at this time series, three time series, they are generally consistent with each other. Our TV result has a high course correlation number of. 0.84, or sorry, 0.89 with echo, and a relatively low number of 0.74 with argo. These good consistencies give us uh, uh, give us more confidence that what we are doing is correct. For example, you can see these uh, these these features; they are generally consistent with each other. However, some discrepancies between them are obvious. For example, these these peaks. For example, this one, this one, and uh, this one. They are more or less underestimated in echo and argo, the green and orange lines. And we, we think this is due to the applied smoothing and limited spatial and temporal resolutions in argo and echo. And our T wave here, we have uh, 2000 pair, repeating pairs that give us a very good uh, temporal resolution. And if we take linear trends, take linear trends of these three time series, T wave result gives a much larger warming trend than Argo and Echo. So if we keep this trend uh, derived from T wave uh, in the next 100 years, the eastern, the eastern Indian Ocean would be warmed up by 0.4 degree, which is quite large. So after 100 years, 0.4 degree. For Argo and Echo, they are about uh, 0.3 degree after 100 years. So for this region, our T wave gives a much larger warming trend. And we have many, many earthquakes in 2005 and 2006 here after the big nearest earthquake. That allows us to zoom in this black window and look at the variations with the higher temporal resolution. So here, this is about one year time series. And in this time series, as you can see, these three time, these three time series, the six month periodicity, for example, from here to here is the six months. Such kind of cycle is quite clear in all of these three time series, because our T wave path is close to the equator, and you can imagine the wind driven ocean temperature contours just go up and down twice a year. This half a year periodicity is is as expected from oceanography view. Similar as the previous result, our T wave result uh, uh, as the previous figure, our T wave result here is more consistent with the Argo than, uh, sorry, more consistent with the Echo than Argo. We think the reason is the Echo using more input to do data simulation, which seems to work quite well for this region. And, uh, because we have lots of data, and so next we can even zoom in this. We can even zoom in this about uh, about one month or less than one month time window, and look at the ten days time variation. So even at this very short time scale, as you can see, our T wave result is still in phase with echo generally. 
Argo has very weak changes because Argo flows can only provide 10 days resolution and therefore miss these short time scale features. So overall, our method looks quite reliable and we do see some signals not captured by Echo and Argo, which is quite encouraging. I have shown the results from Sumatra and it works not bad. But, we, what, but what we really want is a real global application. A global T-wave analysis by Buller and Scherer uh, in 2003, this study does indicate that T-wave is readily observable or is readily observable uh, globally, not only in Indian Ocean, this, this part, but, but in global ocean, Pacific and Atlantic Ocean. But we want to confirm that SOT should also work in this uh, in these regions in the global ocean. And we also know the limitations of our method. The two biggest limitations of our, of our method are listed here. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's uh, uh, the first one is we rely on repeating earthquakes and which we know the number is the number of repeating events is limited. And the second one is the lack of depth distribution. We don't know how the anomalies, the temperature anomalies are distributed in the ocean. So next part, I will try to convince you that SOT can be applied in global ocean. And I will also talk about the possible solutions to overcome these two difficulties. I will use, I will use the CTVDO hydrophones to answer the previous three questions. CTBDO stands for Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty Organization. So CTBDO have built up a global network, including hydrophones and T-wave stations in the ocean to monitor nuclear explosions globally. And here we just use the hydrophone data to do SOT. Presumably all of these orange, uh, or, or these orange triangles and squares, all of these stations, they can be used for SOT. And so far we have done these three uh, hydrophones. I, today I will talk about these two hydrophones, the results from these two hydrophones, because this one, this one, the result is quite complicated. And uh, from oceanography uh, view, also from, you know, the repeating earthquakes in this region. And due to the limited time, let's just focus on these two hydrophones. So let's first look at uh, this hydrophone, the HO8 hydrophone. A great advantage of hydrophone data is that they usually have high T-wave signal-to-noise ratios, which makes uh, small repeating events usable. It's quite nice that this hydrophone HO8 is almost co-located with DGAR. That allows us to do a comparison between them. It turns out, it turns out that this hydrophone HO8 can record T waves from uh, earthquakes at Sumatra subduction zones with magnitude as small as magnitude three. However, many of these small earthquake, earthquakes they are missing in the current catalogs. So what we can do is using the template match method to find out these missing events, these missing small events, which are represented by these orange bars. So finally, as you can see, uh, these blue bars, they are the earthquakes in the, uh, in the existing catalogs, for example, from USGS. 
and the orange bars are the new earthquakes that we find using complete matching. And with this more complete earthquake catalog, we apply uh, our method to the hydrophone, and finally we get about 3,000 repeating uh, events from this hydrophone H08. In contrast, only 900 repeating events from uh, DGAR. So with, with the high signal noise ratio of hydrophone, we do increase the repeating events by a factor of three. So using hydrophone does help us make small repeating events usable, which we know occur much more frequently than large earthquakes. And as expected, if we look at the time series of these two uh, stations, so orange is from the hydrophone and blue is for DGAR. As you can see, they are generally consistent with each other, except this part, this period when, when, uh, when, uh, sorry, when the hydrophone has no data. So this is the data gap of the hydrophone. Next, let's switch to another path, this path. So in this path, we are using the hydrophone uh, at, at the Western Australia coast. And the, the earthquakes we are using are the same earthquakes uh, in, the, in this uh, nearest region. Again, in the time series plotted here, we have three time series, uh, uh, T, -wave, T waves, Argo, and Echo. And in this time series, as you can see, the one-year periodicity, for example, from here to here, it's a one year. This kind of one-year cycle or seasonal change is quite clear in all of these three lines, which is consistent with our oceanography view. But if we but if you look at the early part of this time series, for our T waves, the blue line, you can see there are some spikes. This one, this one, this one. These spikes and the blue uh, curve. And these spikes, they are missing in echo and argo. Actually, these spikes, they are associated with mesoscale eddies. To confirm this interpretation, we have checked out the sea surface elevation data, and we do find that each of these spikes is associated with uh, sea surface elevation anomalies. So here I have an uh, animation of sea surface elevation. Uh, so, sorry, sea surface uh, uh, anomalies, and uh, let let me let me play this uh, animation. So wait for seconds. Yeah. So I want to draw your attention to this part, the Western Australia coast, and this part in the summer we will see the hot spots. For example, here this is the summer in 2005, and in the summer you can see these two hot spots. These hot spots they are corresponding to eddy fields. So when these eddies hit, uh, hit our T-wave path, we will see these spikes. This is 2005, and let's speed it up and get into 2006, the summer of 2006. Again, you can see these hotspots. So here we have uh, uh, another evidence coming from the surface uh, elevation data to confirm our interpretation. And that gives us more confidence to see what we are measuring. There are two signals from the ocean, very interesting signals from eddy fields. 
So these results, the previous results I talked about, they are consistent with our understanding of ocean dynamic processes in many ways. And these uh, spikes, they are not seen in the previous T-wave path from the, from the H08 here, because that path is on the equator and we don't expect attitudes on the equator. This is the previous, this is the previous results. Uh, we, we are working on one frequency band and uh, uh, using that measurement to get the time series. And the next part, I will talk about uh, recent work. How about using multiple, multiple frequency band? As I said, one frequency band can, on, can only tell us average temperature changes and without any spatial uh, distribution uh, information. We cannot get that information. Theoretically, different frequencies of T wave can help us resolve the depth distribution because they have different sensitivity kernels along the depth, which are shown there, shown in, in in this right figure here. As you can see, we have three frequencies, and they have different frequencies along the depth. This is exactly the same idea as we do for surface wave tomography in seismology. So in seismology, we are working on different periods of surface waves and get the, uh, get the seismic, seismic speed distribution along the depth. And here we are trying to do similar thing. And we do see this frequency dependency trend in the observed data. For example, the right figure here, it shows one repeating earthquake example. So the y-axis is frequency and x-axis is the, the, the T-wave trial time delays. And I'll just draw your attention to this black line. This black line is, cor is corresponding to the maximum correlation number. So that tells us the measured trial time delays as a function of uh, frequency. And as you can see, there's a clear trend up to four hertz, so this trend. And such kind of trend should tell us something about the, uh, the, the ocean temperature change distribution along the depth. So we first try this idea with hydrophone and get some, and do get some interesting results. A quick way to check that frequency dependency you know, is, is looking at their differences, right? The differences, the different, their trial time uh, changes at, at, uh, at, for example, in, in, the, in, in the, this figure here, I'm going to show the frequency, the two frequency results. At the top is the trial time changes at two hertz. And the, at the, uh, in the middle figure here, it's the difference between four hertz and two hertz. As you can see, these features in these two uh, figures, they are generally in phase. So go, they go the same direction. That means four hertz anomalies are larger than two hertz or amplify. And to do it better to and get the uh, depth slice tomography, here we first measure trial time changes not only at this two frequencies, we also measure it at three hertz. So we have three frequencies, two hertz, three hertz, and four hertz. And then we conduct a singular vector decomposition with these three frequency results for some sort of depth tomography. 
And here at the bottom here, uh, I'm showing you the SVD singular vector decomposition result. So for in this result, we only keep the first two singular vectors because the third singular vector uh, 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 has larger uncertainty. It has it has the smallest eigen eigenvalue, and so we just discard the third one. And so in this result, it gives us the temperature evolution at long depths, so vertical uh, axis is depth. And as you can see, red is warm and blue is cold. As you can see, there is a clear migration trend along the depth. So this migration is expected from oceanography view if we interpret them as long surface generated equatorial waves. So our, our T wave path HO8 is on the equator, and we have such kind of uh, equatorial waves in the ocean that perturbs the ocean temperature change. And if we look at the, if we look at the long-term trend, the long-term trend as a function of, sorry, let me, the, long-term trend which is plotted in, in the upper figure here so this is long-term trend along the depths at different ocean depths and as you can see in the left figure here this is the uh, the the measurement from uh, from argo echo and hydrographic measurement hydrographic measurement is the red line it's this is this is a repeating measurement the first one is conducted in 2006 and the second one in 2016, if I remember correctly. And then we just uh, uh, project these trends using our uh, our two uh, uh, singular vectors. So the projected results are plotted in the right figure here. So in the right figure here, as you can see, the T wave result is all, it's, it's a warming trend all the way down to depths of four kilometers. But for echo of, sorry, for echo and argo, below the depths of 200, uh, sorry, below the depths of 2.5 kilometers, it's not warming. They, they indicate a colder temperature, which is the opposite uh, result of T wave. And if we look at the hydrographic measurements, the red line, it does show a positive trend, which means warming. So probably here it means our T wave result it captures the 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 the, the warming trend in the deeper uh, in the deep ocean. But of course, both our T wave results and the hydrographic measurements have large uncertainties. So uh, so this conclusion is is you know it's quite preliminary. And then next, let's look at this TV path, uh, this hydrophone HO1, the same thing, we have uh, this, uh, this uh, two frequency results, they go the same direction, the features in this figure and, uh, and this one, this go the same direction. And if you look at the SVD solution, there is no migration. If you go back here, this is a migration, and there is no obvious migration for this path, which is also expected because this path is not on, is not on the equator. Most part of this path is not on the equator. So we don't expect the equatorial waves, the effects from the equatorial waves. And uh, yeah, if we look at uh, 
the long-term trend, uh, all of them show some sort of positive trend. Okay, we have tried the idea of frequency dependency, and it does give us some depth information. However, this method fails at the frequency above 4 hertz. The reason is the T-wave coherency rapidly drops above 4 hertz. As you can see in this figure, above 4 hertz, so above 4 hertz, the CC number is so low that we cannot get reliable measurements. This is a bit disappointing, and we are trying to sort out why CC drops above 4 Hz. One possibility is the mode-dependent travel time changes. Because different modes sample different parts of the ocean, as shown in uh, the eigenfunctions in the, in the right figure here. So this figure shows two frequencies, 2 Hz and 5 Hz. So each frequency will have two lines, the solid line, dash line. The solid line is the fundamental mode, and dash line is the is the mode two. There are more higher modes, but here I just plotted. I just plot the the first two modes. As you can see, the eigenfunctions they sample different oceans, and then when the ocean temperature change uh, uh, is not uniform along the depths, the the consequent trial time change of these two modes. They would be different, right? And then when we add up these two modes together, and we will get uh, different waveforms. The waveform change. So this is the. Uh, mm -hmm. We're just jumping in to say we have about uh, ten minutes left. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So this is uh, the possible reason, and uh, it decreases the CC number. So to understand this process, we did some numerical experiment. And in this numerical experiment, what we did is we perturb the ocean, the top two kilometer ocean, and then you, uh, you and then run the spectrum. So on the right here, this is uh, uh, the sand speed profile and the color represents sand speed. And uh, on the right here, I plot what I'm what I'm showing you is in. For these black lines, there are two seismograms uh, from event one and event two. In event two, we change the ocean temperature change in the, uh, sorry, we change the ocean temperature, uh, temperature in the top two kilometers. As you can see, because temperature changes and the waveforms change, the T waves change. And however, if we look at the individual mode, so here we have two modes, mode one and mode two. If we look at the individual mode, there is the trial time, trial time shift, right? There's trial time shift here as well as here. But their the waveforms are very similar to each other. If we use uh, the uh, if we use the waveform cross-correlation to match, as you can see, the y-axis is the cross-correlation number. For individual mode, the CC number, both of them, they are above 0.9. But for the black lines, is below 0.6. So this interprets the, the drops of CC above the 4 hertz. Of course, this experiment is very preliminary experiment, and we need to do more uh, analysis about that. But, but if this interpretation is true, that means we can do mode tomography. That says, that says measuring trial time changes of each mode. 
This concept has been proposed in active ocean acoustic community decades ago, but it was not widely used for eventual reasons. One reason, uh, one reason is that it needs a vertical hydrophone array to separate the modes, which is usually not available. Usually what we have is just, you know, one hydrophone uh, data. For example, the previous CDPTO data, the hydrophone, it's one hydrophone uh, at, at one site. And another difficulty there is the modes coupling. So there's the modes coupling effects, they are strong at high frequency, which is uh, confirmed in active ocean acoustics. However, the coupling effects might be weaker for T waves because T waves are lower frequencies and would be not affected too much by the sand speed heterogeneities in the ocean. So the same idea as we do in seismology, uh, here in seismology for surface wave, you know, uh, the multiple modes of surface waves and there are coupling effects there. These coupling effects, they become smaller for longer periods. The same thing here. If this is true, and then what we are, we need to, uh, we, we only need to focus on is how to get vertical uh, hydrophone array data, right? And especially, can we get can we get a scalable and costly efficient way to install hydrophone array, vertical hydrophone array that helps us separate these modes and do mode tomography? So briefly summarize, we think SOT can be applied globally, and the hydrophone arrays could help us make the small repeating events usable for SOT. And we are still, still working on how to get depth information of ocean channels using different frequencies uh, and using different modes. And this is my conclusion. SOT is feasible and accurate. It has no anthropogenic interference with marine animals. And uh, uh, because our T-wave samples the deep ocean, it desirably complements other point measurements. And for the depth information, we are trying to work on multiple frequencies and, mode, and modes, which could give us uh, the depth distribution of ocean temperature anomalies. And I want to say is eventually the optimal solution would be combining all the possible data, including Argo, SOT, and satellites to do data simulation and get the best possible constraints and ocean temperature changes. Yeah, I think I will just stop here and open for your questions. Wow, thank you, Venbo. That was a great talk. Um, so before before we do questions, I just want to give a chance for everyone to thank Winbo. He's awesome. Um, so now we'll open it up to questions. If anyone has a question, they can raise their hand or type it in the chat. Um, I guess I can, I can start off with questions. So I'm wondering, um, so you're saying that Argo only has data to about 2004? Um, do you have any plans to extend this SOT to previous uh, seismic events going back to, and we have data to like 90s, maybe 80s with digital data? And then maybe yeah. do you think you, you could do this on analog records that go back to maybe the 30s? Yeah, that's a good question. Actually, we did. We did try to do that. And uh, yeah, I, I, I took some work here. To, to look at that, as you, as you said, is the analog data. And uh, I think uh, currently, uh, what, we, what, what we are sure is we can do this back to 1990s. 
and before 1990s, most of the, the most of the data, the analog data, and I think USGS had a project a few years ago, which is trying, which is trying, that's trying to you know digitize this analog data and look at the the some of this data. It turns out it's quite challenging because these um, these instruments. Uh, the response is more sensitive to the long periods for our purpose, long periods like tens of seconds. So it's quite hard to get the one hertz or a few hertz signals there from the analog data. But for, but uh, yeah, back to 1990 or after 1990, yes, we are working on that. We have the digital data. Awesome. Um, any other questions for Wimbo? Um... Raise your hands in the chat. Um, I guess one other question I had was, so when you're making the um, the delta T measurement on the T waves, um, do you see an increase in the phase lag between the two repeating events um, as you go into the coda? Is there some kind of, is there a scattering effect or is it just like a, a, um, a similar phase lag throughout the entire uh, T wave? Oh uh, yeah, it turns out you mean for T wave, right? Yes, yeah. Yeah, for T wave, the, the same is uh, for the entire seismogram duration. It's usually is like uh, uh, twenty or fifty seconds. It depends on which which region uh, the the earthquakes are. And in this twenty or or fifty seconds, it turns out the uh, time lag is roughly similar. There is no, you know, trend uh, of time lag changing with uh, with uh, the arrival time of T wave. Yeah, usually we see this for P or S coda waves, right? And if there is a cross change, then we see the the change in the, 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 the in the coda, the trial time lag is different. But for T wave, it's roughly the same. Yeah, I think that also tells us this for the different parts of these T waves. I think they are sensitive kernels, roughly the same. Okay, that's good to hear. Um, any other questions? Um, we're getting towards the end of our hour, so if anyone has a last question, um, feel free to chime in. Okay, um, if not, let's thank uh, Wimbo again. He'll, he's uh, Agreed to stick around just to have informal chat. Um, so before you head out, give him our thanks for a great talk. Thank you. Thank you, Wembo. Thank you. So just